Welcome to Season 3 of Plato's Pod, the podcast where we discuss the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is October 20th, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. I hope everyone enjoyed a pleasant few months over our summer break. We're a few weeks later than I had planned in starting Season 3, and that's because I had a particularly busy and productive time since Season 2 ended in July. I used many platonic themes in completing a draft of my book entitled Luca and Leonardo, The Shape of Time. Profits from the book will go to charity, and I'm hoping it will be published in the first part of the new year. It's a work of historical fiction involving Leonardo da Vinci and mathematician Luca Pacioli, who in real life lived together for 10 years in Milan and Florence. In the story, they're tasked with creating a code to forecast time, which presents a great mathematical and geometric challenge. I also launched a new free journal of philosophy, science, technology, and time called The Quantum Record, which you can find at thequantumrecord.com. I'd love to know what you think of it. Before we begin our group discussions, I thought it might be helpful to present some thoughts on Plato's theory of forms. The forms will have a particular relevance to our examination of the Cratylus, the first of which will be recorded in a week. It's Plato's dialogue on the origin of the names we apply to things, the ways that our words for things change over time, and the meaning of our words when they combine in language. The debate that Socrates moderates in the Cratylus is whether the words we apply to things originated in nature or by human convention. What's the difference, and how does it relate to Plato's theory of forms? This is what I want to talk about in this episode, with some ideas that we might entertain in our group discussion in a week. I hope that these thoughts will also serve as a helpful summary of some of what we've learned and shared over the past 29 episodes of this podcast. To begin with, we need to understand what the characters in Plato's dialogue mean by the word thing. It's an important word that we'll address early in our discussion on the Cratylus. For the time being, let's define thing as broadly as we can, because the things to which Socrates refers in the debate are practically unlimited. A definition of thing that strikes me as particularly broad is whatever is or may be an object of thought. Note a few key aspects of this definition, beginning with time. A thing is or may be, which means that a thing can exist in either the present, we would say the thing is in that case, or in the future, when the thing may be but is not yet. The other key part of the definition of thing is that it is an object of thought. As I think about thought, it seems to have no inherent limit. Any limit of my thought is one that I choose to establish. But if I let my thoughts run on, then they won't necessarily have any limit, at least while I'm alive and awake. Do you think that there is a limit to thought, or has any such limit ever been scientifically established? If not, then the subject matter of the Cratylus, which is the objects of thought and the names we apply to them, is unlimited. So I wanted to raise this definition of thing because it's relevant to the way I'll present Plato's forms. I'll describe the forms as functions of limits and differences through time, by which our minds perceive things. Our minds don't perceive the limits of things and their differences at any single point in time. Instead, we understand the dynamics of things in time, and we make meaning from the limits and differences of things past, present, and future. I think this will be helpful to place Plato's Cratylus in a truly relevant, very modern, and as I'll shortly discuss, technological context. It speaks not just to today's technology, but also the technology of the future that will be born from the choices we make in the present. The debate in the Cratylus centers on two opposed perceptions of the objects of our thoughts. One, the naturalist perspective, holds that the names we assign to things have an objective basis in nature, 
independent of the subjective and changing ways in which humans apply the names over time. The naturalist view implies that any word begins with a single, changeless meaning, which can be traced back in time to the form of the thing to which the word applies. In this sense, the form of a thing is a universal limit of the thing, and therefore fully describes the thing's unchanging characteristics throughout time. Time, to the naturalist perspective, is the dynamic medium that conveys the timeless permanence, or forms, of things to our minds. The opposite conventionalist view says that the meaning of each word derives from, and changes with, its human usage, differing from one community to another, with no consistency necessary from past to present to future. The dynamic medium, in this view, is not time, but our minds, around which time bends. This approach sees not one but many origins to the meaning of words that evolve and are never fixed in time, and it provides no basis to connect a word to a singular form of a thing. The conventionalist perspective might remind us of the position of Protagoras in Plato's Theaetetus, which we discussed at the end of Season 1. There, Protagoras was said to believe that man is the measure of all things, of the things that are, that they are, and of the things that are not, that they are not. In other words, Protagoras didn't believe that there is an objective, singular form to gauge the limits by which a thing is measured. To the thinking of Protagoras, the extent of any thing is determined at a particular time, but not for all time, by differing human perspectives relative to all other things. In the dialogue that we'll discuss in a week, Cratylus is the character who advocates for the naturalist position of a timeless, universal meaning of things, while the other character, Hermogenes, initially holds for the conventionalist approach that a thing's meaning is always in flux and never fixed in time. I'll begin our discussion with a clip of world-renowned physicist Sir Roger Penrose commenting on knowledge, the mind, and quantum theory. Penrose's observations may help to illustrate what I just described as the difference between the naturalist and conventionalist approach to language. It's essentially, I think, a question of whether our minds and the universe are one, as in the naturalist perspective, or whether our minds are different from the universe in the conventionalist view. To begin to address the question, we can ask, what is the order of our perception? Does perception begin with the universe delivering to our minds the limits and differences of individual things? And only when we process that information do we perceive the limitless probabilities of things in combination. Or does perception start with our minds, first determining the limits and differences of things to constrain their future probabilities in a manner of our choosing to which time complies? In the context of quantum mechanics, at least to my understanding, a flow of information that begins with the universe seems like physicist David Bohm's concept of a pilot wave of continuing probabilities, while an information flow that begins in our minds equates to the classical Copenhagen interpretation that says observation causes a collapse of probabilities. In the question of the order of perception and its causes and effects, there's an interesting connection to Plato's Phaedo, where Socrates invites us to consider the consequences if we lack knowledge of the order of cause and effect in time. Socrates challenges our definition of the word cause, and definition of words is, after all, the subject of the Cratylus. At 92b to c of the Phaedo, he says, Imagine not being able to distinguish the real cause from that without which the cause would not be able to act as a cause. It is what the majority appear to do, like people groping in the dark. They call it a cause, thus giving it a name that does not belong to it. In other words, Socrates is saying the names we give to things matter in understanding the logic of our cycles of human action and reaction. 
This is the reason why the subject of the cratylus, the origin of the meaning of words, matters so greatly. Since a significant portion of the cratylus provides a detailed account of the source of many ancient Greek words, at first I found it difficult to place the dialogue in a context that's important to us now, in the year 2022. But then I began to think of the difficulty and violence that now erupts when we debate the meaning of some things, particularly things like democracy that politicians and voters now apply with conflicting definitions to the extreme. Disagreement on the meaning of words like democracy has real consequences to the lives of hundreds of millions of people living in systems that hold themselves to be democratic. The present importance of the Cradless isn't just a case of resolving divergent meanings of words like democracy, as important as that is. Plato's dialogue has a very pressing technological relevance as artificial intelligence is rapidly gaining the power to interpret and apply human language. At the current rate, it seems that in the very near future, we might not be able to tell the difference between machine language and human language. The recent breakthroughs in a machine language technology called GPT-3 are astounding, but have we thought through the future consequences of that? When we have such trouble defining words like democracy, how can we expect that our machines will ever sort out the meaning of things as they simulate our language? Let's not forget that humans are the ones who program the machines, and no human is exempt from error. As the speed of our technology continues to increase, and its use extends into so many aspects of our daily lives, we might pause to consider how quickly the machines could amplify our programming errors, and what ideas they might convey as they simulate our words. Maybe a way to bridge differences in meaning and find the reality of a thing, regardless of human or machine interpretation, is to look for the timeless, unchanging form of the thing. That there could be a universal form of a thing is certainly a subject of long debate among philosophers, beginning with Plato's own students. But is there a message in Plato's dialogue that we would do well to appreciate now, 2,400 years later, with the technology we're developing in the year 2022? Should we concede that neither man nor machine is the measure of all things, because the differences and limits among things, and their infinite probabilities in combination, are universal? So as I mentioned, form is particularly important for the naturalist view of words, which holds that the name of a thing has a single, objective origin on the basis of the form of the thing to which the word applies. Regardless of whether the naturalist or conventionalist approach is correct, it does seem essential to the exchange of ideas between humans that our souls share a common sense of the limits of one thing that distinguish it from another thing. Otherwise, when we communicate with each other, there'd be confusion in understanding the extent of the objects that we intend to describe, and we won't have a shared understanding of the logic that we want to exchange. How would we ever compose and exchange complex ideas without a shared understanding of the things that comprise the ideas? If, for example, I wanted to talk to you about the thing with four walls and a roof that I call house, but you think I mean a large, leaf-eating animal with a trunk that I would refer to as elephant, how could we ever exchange and develop ideas about either? As I consider the rancor and discord in the world today, a common theme that emerges is the question, now so frequently asked, about the nature of reality itself. There are increasingly poisonous debates about what a fact is and is not, and the very sequence of cause and effect in time is being questioned. Not so long ago, a political spokesperson put the confusion succinctly when she stated her belief in what she called alternative facts. 
The thing she didn't realize about facts is that they have no alternatives. But then that's a question of definition of the word fact, isn't it? How will emerging technology like GPT-3 interpret the word fact when the word is misunderstood by humans? Surely, if there is a word with a universal meaning, it has to be fact. So how do we establish the limits of fact and distinguish it from opinion or belief or fiction? For that matter, how do we know the limits of anything? It seems fundamental to our perception and to our development and exchange of complex ideas that we share a sense of the boundaries that make one object of thought different from another. It's the differences among things that we perceive, and each difference has its limits. Difference and limits are the way I perceive the forms that Plato placed throughout his works, and this is the perspective that I want to share. In establishing the limits of a thing, physical things are easier to define than abstract objects of thought. Take for comparison chair, which is the name we give to a physical object on which we sit, and democracy, which is an abstraction with no physical existence. Since we can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear democracy, it's more difficult to establish the limits of the thing we call democracy than it is to agree on the limits of the thing that we call a chair. Still, though, the limits that distinguish one physical thing from another can be less than perfectly clear. For instance, where do we draw the line between chair and couch? since both are used for sitting. Is there a universal form of chair that differs in its limits from a universal form of couch? And what about more recent inventions for sitting, such as the beanbag or futon? Once invented, are there individual limits inscribed somewhere in the universe with a permanent meaning that will not change in time? We see many examples of word meanings and applications that do change over time, and so the more timeless and permanent a name is, the more it resembles the universal limit of a thing. An example of one word with a significant change in meaning and application over the past two decades is impact, which in the recent past was applied primarily to the act or result of a collision. A collision has a particular effect, but now, in the present, the word impact is most widely used to describe any effect in general. Once common, the word effect is now rare and has almost been completely replaced by impact. It seems, at least in the present, that neither of effect or impact has established a meaning of any permanence in time, since the limits of each word have changed rapidly in a short time. So changes in meaning such as this raise the question of the historical record that we create with our speech, writing, and recorded images. Imagine an historian, anthropologist, economist, or anyone else 500 years in the future looking back to today to understand the sequences of our causes and effects that led to their time a half millennium later. What would they make of the changing use of the words impact and effect, and all of the other words and meanings that we use now but didn't use before? Would they understand our historical record and the account we make of ourselves? Or would they encounter some confusion? Maybe they would think that over the course of two decades, we've come to see every effect as severe as a collision, and wonder at this change in perception and what caused us to eliminate the difference between the words impact and effect. I wonder at this myself, each of the many times I see impact now in such frequent use. What triggered the change? Let's consider an example of words for physical objects with more distinct and therefore more timeless meaning. The words house and elephant seem to have clearly different applications and meanings. The naturalist would say that there are inherent limits that apply to the meaning of house at any time past, present, or future that render the timeless form of a house different from that of an elephant. If we were to adopt a conventionalist approach, however, 
Would there be any limits that prevent us from naming a thing house in the 21st century that in the 22nd century we might call elephant? Without some consistency in a word's limits over time, would our historical records ever make sense or convey any logical meaning with such changes to names over many centuries? So in making an account of the meaning of any thing, less confusion arises when the historical record does not need to explain changes to the limits we assign to the thing at one time versus another. The account would also be less prone to error if there's consistency and permanence in its objects, and this seems to argue for recognition of the forms of things. Plato applied the term form to the permanence of a thing and specified that each form is unchanging over time. He famously did not define what a form is, although in The Sophist, which we discussed in three episodes in Season 2, he specified the five key forms, which are that which is, the same, the different, change, and rest. Can the dynamics of the entire universal system of things be constructed from these five forms? If the form of a thing is a thing's limits, which have no potential to diminish or dilute over time, and is therefore the least possible measure of a thing for all time, then a compelling argument for universal application of these five forms is set out in the Sophist from 255c to 257b. For the moment, let's imagine the form as the smallest fraction of a thing, containing only the unique limits that distinguish the particular thing from any other thing, in the grouping of all things and the many sets of things. In this imagining, the form of house would never share all limits of its meaning with the form of elephant, which has its own limits in meaning. In the sense that it cannot be divided or fractioned beyond a minimum, the form of a thing is what I've come to think of as infinitely dense. An infinitely dense thing does not diminish over time, no matter how many times it's repeated or combined with other things. In the way that the Planck constant is to physics, the form of a thing is, to the mind, the minimum probability of the thing. I think of Plato's forms like I think of both prime numbers and real numbers. Like a prime number, a form can be divided in only two ways and remain true to itself, or, as an older saying goes, remain true to form. A form can be divided either by itself, in which case any form like a prime number would produce one, or it can be divided by one, in which case, like a prime number, the form would produce itself without change remaining distinct from other forms. I find it helpful to compare the forms to the real numbers, which are infinitely dense and constitute, without either mathematical or geometrical limit, a complete ordered field of number in both fractional and whole limits. In this sense, the form of a thing is the complete ordering of the thing's components, or, if you will, the recipe that defines the extent of the thing. The form is infinitely unchanging, so that any thing at one time has the same fundamental measure at another time, regardless of differing symbology and use that humans apply to objects of the mind at various times and locations. As the permanent record of a thing, the thing's form allows us to make a complete account, at any time, of the thing's causes and effects in the course of history. A complete account of the thing would therefore be a record of the thing in its eternal state of being, while any account of a thing's existence from one moment of the present to the next would be limited by time. These analogies might require a bit of mathematical knowledge, but I think most listeners will have learned about both prime numbers and real numbers in their teenage years and can recall the general principles without a great deal of effort. The specifics of prime numbers and real numbers, however, occupy some of the world's brightest minds for their entire careers, 
and their discoveries power the rapid evolution of the technology that shapes our daily lives in the present. Let's consider Socrates' statement in The Republic, that the first order of knowledge for a philosopher is of number and calculation. And let's wonder at Plato's repeated mention of even and odd numbers throughout his dialogues. Could the unique nature of each particular form, and the singular nature of all forms in combination, be analogous to the universe? If the universe is indivisibly one, with the infinite capacity to sustain its own limits, and nothing else is. I put the question out there for discussion, in either or both of a philosophical and geometric perspective. So the first of the five key forms of Plato's sophist, that which is, encompasses every probability in existence, and by this definition is therefore of universal application. The second form, the same, appears in every thing, because each thing is the same as itself. The third form, the different, also pervades every thing, because each thing is different from every other thing. The fourth and fifth forms, change and rest, are opposite states of motion, and in the Phaedo which we discussed in season two, it's said that every thing comes to be in opposites. When a thing is at rest, it remains the same and is motionless, while its opposite a thing in motion is in a state of change in a process that generates difference. As Plato put it at Timaeus 28a, difference exists in a state of becoming, which is how the character Timaeus defines the present. In contrast to the present, which is limited to a particular moment, the state of being is universal, incapable of increase or decrease, and therefore limitless, timeless, changeless, and motionless. When we consider the process of becoming in a universe we know to be presently in motion, we should recall Plato's definition of the word motion in the Theotetus, which we discussed in Season 1. Motion can exist in two ways, either as a change in spatial position, which is the way we normally think of motion, or as a change of physical state. For example, water freezing into ice involves motion. This definition of motion is borne out by modern science, which observes that in the present, every physical thing is subject to continual change in both space and state, beginning in an ordered state and over time changing to a state of maximum disorder, which we call entropy. Every visible thing in the present is subject to this continual change and motion. It's the invisible things, our minds in the eternal realm of being, that observe the limits of visible things in the present state of becoming with entropy. The soul observes and makes meaning from the data of physical limits that it receives from the five physical senses. The physical data tell the soul the shape of the things, and therefore the limits of the things that are in the present, beyond which there is no defined limit to the potential of that which may be in the future. Let's pause to think about the power and philosophy of potential. The future potential of a thing can far exceed the present limits to which a thing is constrained in a particular function. The atomic bomb might be an extreme example of this principle, because atoms are constrained in their number and function in a particular thing, such as our bodies, but they contain the potential of incredible power to destroy many things when they're split in a specific manner. While we haven't yet been able to locate either a beginning or end of all physical things in combination, we are becoming very talented in identifying the limits of particular physical things like an atom. If the potential of all things, both physical and abstract, has a limit in time, we haven't discovered it yet. Therefore, at least to our present knowledge, the limit of all things remains undefined, while a thing has defined limits at a particular time. But are we satisfied to know the limits of things? It seems the imagination exists to bypass limits. 
It's the soul's task in every reason to seek the potential of things and not accept without question that the perceived limits of a thing are changeless. Failure to question what things might be and simply to assume that things can only be is to deny the soul its purpose. If things could only be, then the soul would be pointless. The soul would be incapable of determining that which is otherwise physically deterministic in the sequence of cause and effect that we call time. The soul would have no point in time, lacking capacity to sustain its existence as a motivating force. The soul would be no different from a programmed algorithm if things could only be. In the present, which is the state of becoming, the idea of what might be is powerful indeed, so powerful that it's transformed the planet, subjecting the nature of the universe to our increasing technological power. Just look at the Earth, which began as a molten rock over four billion years ago. The planet's original nature is nearly unrecognizable beneath our cities, around the waterways we diverted, and in the chemistry of its air, water, and soil transformed by our pollution. Pollution is an output of our technological choices, and by the word's definition, pollution is toxic to nature. Here's a question we could ask in our technological contest with nature. Is there any logic to an expectation that the power of our technology could ever exceed the limitless nature of the universe? The universe, after all, has to remain true to itself. That's the universe's prime function, its only job, really. We could say the universe is symmetrical to itself, any half equal to any other half, both halves always combining to one, and having zero difference in the final account of all combinations. We humans are the ones who channel the course of probabilities in time, with the differences and asymmetries of our thoughts and ideas. Nonetheless, as the universe sorts out all the differences into the infinite density of its being, it always achieves a balance in its own account. In harmonizing each thing with everything, the universe is one. As Parmenides concluded in Plato's dialogue of the same name that we discussed at the end of season two, if one is not, then nothing is. To me, the five key forms in Plato's Sophist seem like the minimum basis for a dynamic system of things with universal application. To my imagination, each constantly moving physical thing can be harmonized with all things physical in combinations of these five forms, requiring no other fundamental operation or state. While Plato didn't provide a definition of the word form, perhaps in the sequences of logic woven into his dialogues, he planted the idea of forms so that we can construct in our own memories our own definition. To do so requires imagination and the account of the reasons why, which is knowledge, as I'll explain shortly. So we might think of the form as a template of a thing's limits, but one that has no presence in the dimensions of space-time in which all physical things exist in the present. As Plato presents it, the physical manifestation of anything imitates the form of the thing and becomes physical matter in the geometry of three dimensions of space that operate in one continual dimension of time. For the physical manifestation of the forms, I've been drawn to consider the geometry and the combined potential of the only five regular solids in the universe. In his Timaeus, Plato introduced to the world these five shapes, the cube, tetrahedron, octahedron, dodecahedron, and icosahedron. He told us that they are the only three-dimensional shapes having edges of equal length with all vertex connections retaining the capacity to inscribe a sphere. The logical potential of the five platonic solids and the symmetry of their combinations seem very compelling to the physics of things. I think many readers struggle with the geometry and numbers that Plato sprinkles throughout his dialogues. 
Generally now, philosophers are not trained in geometry or mathematics, and so these specifics in Plato's works are often overlooked and the philosophical words predominate in meaning. As a result, it's not common to question why, for example, Plato made a passing reference to the spiral of Theodorus in his dialogue on knowledge, the Theotetus. But if we think about it, though, we see two of Plato's key five forms, the same and the different, in the spiral of Theodorus. Could that be the reason for its passing mention? Certainly, Newton, Einstein, and others have provided ample scientific evidence that all physical things in our universe are geometric, and we recall that Plato was a geometer as well as a philosopher. The great scientist Galileo noted the importance of geometry to knowledge when he wrote, Philosophy is written in that great book whichever lies before our eyes. I mean the universe, but we cannot understand it if we do not first learn the language and grasp the symbols in which it is written. This book is written in the mathematical language, and the symbols are triangles, circles, and other geometrical figures, without whose help it is impossible to comprehend a single word of it, without which one wanders in vain through a dark labyrinth. The significance of geometry to learning in Plato's academy was evident in the words he placed above the entrance of the school. Let no one who is without geometry enter these doors. So with geometry in mind, here's my take on the meaning of the word form, with universal application to things, as I proposed in our third episode on the sophist in season two. I'd love to discuss this with interested listeners and entertain other ideas. On the basis of combinations of logic throughout Plato's dialogues, my proposal was, and remains, as follows. The forms are the means by which our minds, in the eternal realm of being, recall the logical order of cause and difference in the variable state of coming to be of the present to which all physical objects are limited. The forms are geometric, but in order to provide the mind a complete account of the physics of coming to be, the forms neither exist in nor affect the geometric limits of space and time that define the present. There are no physics in eternal being, which has neither past nor future, and therefore no present to divide it into two parts. Being, which is the domain of the mind, is one without limit, having capacity for neither increase nor decrease in its infinite density. Being just is, at all times, its own derivative. So in my definition, the term is its own derivative can be applied either in its mathematical sense, particularly as Euler, Gauss, and Riemann did, or otherwise as that which requires no external source to sustain itself. In the physical geometry of the five solids, I imagine the derivative of being would exist everywhere at the same frequency, which is the universal speed limit of light. In the context of the forms, which are not physical, we might think of light, which has no mass and no physical resistance, as analogous to the mutual limit of both the same and the different. The analogy derives from the physical properties of light, in that everything contained in a light beam is the same, but everything outside it is put in a state of difference as a consequence of the beam's energy. At 508b to 509b of the Republic, Plato used the analogy of light to describe the form of the good, explaining that in their function, both light and the good are their own inputs and outputs. In other words, their own source and derivative. The form of the good, Plato wrote, is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. So let me conclude on the subject of knowledge and relate it to the forms and the names we apply to things. What does it mean to know? In a physical universe that's in a constant state of change, 
Subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and Gödel's incompleteness theorems, knowledge is not easily established. The importance of the question, what is knowledge, increases with the power of our technology and its power to fabricate and simulate human situations and language. We now have the means to produce lifelike holograms, and as I mentioned at the start of this talk, the GPT-3 technology that simulates human language is producing unique sentences that are sometimes indistinguishable from those a human would create. With such power, how can we be certain that we know something and that we are not mistaken? In the past century, science has proven that everything in the present exists in a physical state of uncertainty, with outcomes that are unknowable. These proofs were the achievements of physicists Werner Heisenberg and mathematician Kurt Gödel, and they established beyond a doubt that we live in a universe of probability, not certainty. Yet, social media and other platforms enabled by today's digital technology provide many examples of people who claim knowledge with little basis, leaving more questions than answers. The nature of knowledge has become a technological challenge, particularly as profit seekers now promise to extract us from the real world with all of its challenges to our perception and immerse us in what has been called the metaverse. Knowledge, as Plato presents it in The Republic, is at the limit of a divided line of reality, and it requires effort to achieve the limit of knowledge. The line begins with the unreasoning sensory data that we receive every moment of our existence, which proceeds to belief, then with effort to reason thought, and finally, after more effort, to knowledge. The line is divided geometrically, in what we would now call the golden ratio, or, as mathematician Luca Pacioli, who is a main character in my book, referred to it, the divine proportion. Once achieved with reason and effort, knowledge, as Socrates states in the Mino, is recollection, which he further describes as the account of the reasons why. As I recall the account of the reasons why I am who I am, existing as I do at this moment in time, I can't help but think of the sequences of cause and effect that brought me from the past to the present. The account of my reasons why is a combination of my choices, my errors, and the reactions of others. In any event, it's not random. Time operates with a logic that we establish individually, but also, since none of us is capable of existing completely alone, together. In its sequences of events, the logic of time requires a grounding. Each event in our lives has a particular beginning and end, doesn't it? And doesn't each event result in another event, in sequences of events over time? Every cause is defined, as is each effect, and once cause and effect combine, they establish the past, which doesn't vary. The only variance is in the present, with future probabilities that we can weigh in setting our future courses of action, or so it seems to me. I mean, how else could we navigate time if the tide of past events was always shifting? Is it the same for you when you reflect on your history and your account of the reasons why? There is only one past for all of us, which provides to each of us unlimited choice in the present. As I see them, the forms, in this sense, guarantee the limits of the past for each thing that exists or that we imagine can exist. Once established, the thing's limits are fixed for all time. The future applications of the thing, as they say, is up to the imagination, and that's our unique and greatest power as human beings. When we share a common understanding of the universe of things and their meaning, the infinite potential of future probabilities is ours to make of it what we will, if we choose. This promise, I think, is at the core of Plato's message in the Cradless. 